Hey everyone, thanks for joining. Today I'm speaking with David Ben Moshe. Uh, I became aware of David when I read, read an article he'd written in Newsweek, and it was, I'm a black ex-felon, and I have a message about cancel culture. And I mean, I found it a really interesting article. Um, some of it kind of resonated with something I'd written about uh, similarities between uh, fundamentalist Islam and you know cancel culture, woke, or whatever you want to call it. Hey, David, thank you for coming on. Oh, thank you for having me. So, yeah, I figured, like I said, we could start with your article. Now, you'd written about, you know, how you're an ex-felon and, you know, the difficulties you'd had even after leaving uh, prison. And then you were comparing that to cancel culture. So if you wouldn't mind going a bit into your article and then we can go from there. Yeah. So the basic premise of my article started from something that I'd noticed that we have this cancel culture where someone makes a mistake and then we feel the need to punish them and then chase them down and take away all their future opportunities, no matter the severity of their crime, whether or not they apologize, whether or not they're acquitted. It's something that just follows you along for the rest of your life. And I really saw a parallel between that and what's happened in my life where I was young. I made some very bad mistakes. I ended up in federal prison. I served my time. I was released early for good behavior. I was released early from supervised release, which is like the equivalent of probation in the federal system for good behavior. I got my life together. I became an upstanding member of the community. I even consulted for the police department. And after all these things I'd done, I was still constantly being punished for the crime that I committed you know, 10 years ago. And just never being able to get over that, I could see one of the problems with how we treat people with cancel culture, where we don't allow people to make amends, it causes future problems. Like one of the reasons why recidivism in the United States is so bad is that when you have a felony or a criminal record, it is almost impossible to get work. And by extending forgiveness to people, you allow them to re-enter society. Okay. The, the, the similarities, I just want to put that aside for a second. I, I, like, I remember my dad. Now, my dad did this because, you know, he was starting his business and he was a bit cheap. But there was a program in Canada back in the early 80s, early mid 80s, where it was people who had been released from prison, you know, or I think they also had refugees in there because there was a, a we were getting like an influx of refugees coming in from a few different places. And the government would pay um, the majority of their, like, it was like minimum wage jobs. I think at the time it was like five bucks an hour. So the government would pay four bucks and the employer would have to pay one. So for my dad, it was like, okay, I'm paying someone eight bucks a day instead of 40. So I can get, you know, but they had those kind of programs. Now, okay. I agree with you there. Like if you've served your sentence, done your, you know, done the time that you're supposed to do. I mean, the whole point is to rehabilitate someone so they can come back into society, but I mean, society has to let them in. Right. So are there any kind of programs like that? I'm just curious. Like, are, are there anything from the government or whatever to help you get back, like get work and get things like that? Or? Very few, almost none. I, as I understand it, there's certain state systems that have small programs like that. 
but most of them do not. And on the federal level, there's effectively, there's trade shops. Kind of the closest program they have to that is almost a worse situation where inside the federal system, they do have a business called Unicor, where basically they have businesses inside of the prison system. And while people are incarcerated, they can work. And after a few years of working hard, they reach the top of the pay scale and make $1 an hour where they can allegedly learn job skills in that one industry. But those programs are very small. There's not enough room for everyone. In my uh, stay in prison, I was told like, yeah, like if you're not going to be here for at least 10 years, don't even bother applying because it's going to take six or seven before your name comes up. So, and then I tried some of the trade programs and the trade programs were abysmal. I did a carpentry program supposed to teach me how to do woodwork. And basically what happened was we all went to a classroom and the inmates who had prior experience on the outside being carpenters did work for the prison for free to build things and no one got any education. It was just like a pen to keep us in. So, like this is just, okay, again, like I'm, you know, I think the prison system from, I mean, again, I'm outside looking in and I'll look at this and I think it's, you know, from what I see there, okay, there's definitely changes need to be done. I think for profit is probably one of the things that has to go, but, but wouldn't it make more sense? I mean, I, I still like, I'm trying to figure out the logic of this. Like, I don't want to get back to the cancel culture, but this is, <laughs> the, I, I, I try to understand the logic of this. Like, wouldn't it make more sense to actually give the people the skills they need than to waste money on, I mean, I, like, it's like the government, like the waste of government money. I've, I mean, I've worked for governments and I've worked on government contracts and I've seen a lot of that. And I just, <laughs> but I'm like, yeah, but something like this, like, I still don't get that. Like, if you've got a carpentry shop, you want to teach, teach people carpentry, then you make them work for, like, actually bring out product instead of, teaching people like I, I just don't understand like what the thinking behind that is i don't actually know kind of from when i zoom out and look at the big picture i think it's unintended consequences of very poor incentives there's just a lot of money in the federal prison system there's a lot of money in the criminal social justice system for the war on drugs which has caused this grossly overpopulated system that makes a few people with a lot of power very rich and they kind of want to keep it perpetuating because if you're the person who has the private prison or interest in it you're making lots of money on it like this is good for you people coming back is good for that person yeah now it's just like i said it just boggles the mind it's just it, like you're totally counter to what you should be doing but um, and where that really ties in, which I also talked about into the article to woke culture, is that we have like this is a huge, obvious, serious problem. And instead of the woke people fighting to make this situation better, they're too busy talking about microaggressions on Twitter 
<laughs> and you know, professors not using the correct pronoun, and there's real atrocities and systemic racism in the country that they could be fine to solve, but that's all being ignored because we're focused on something completely different. Okay, that's okay. I have plenty of issues with you know whatever you want to call it, the critical social justice woke. Like I have plenty of issues with it, but my biggest problem what it really comes down to, I think, is what you just mentioned there. We're fighting the wrong fights because of this stuff. We're busy, like, take education, because that has a, I think that has a huge part to play in, like, the prison system as well. You know, uh, Enormous. You know, if, if you're not talking about 65% of the kids not being able to read and write at grade level when they graduate, you know, but instead you're arguing on whether or not it is critical race theory in the classrooms. Like that's the wrong argument to be having. The argument to be having is why are kids not being able to read and write, <laughs> but you're wasting your time, like trying to figure out if what they're teaching in the classrooms right now is critical race theory or not. And it's like, <laughs> like that's what I mean. Like this stuff is, you know, uh, another example was uh, when Trump with Trump, all the, the kids in cages and all that stuff. Right. So at one point it got to the, it got to like, okay, we're discussing whether or not it should be considered concentration camps, but like they're not doing anything about the kids in cages. Like they were, act there was actually, like, I think it was like Wayfair or whatever was going to send mattresses, but because they de dealt with the Republican government, they protested them. They blocked the trucks from leaving <laughs> the Republicans, but the Republicans are in power. It's like, that's what I mean. Like this stuff is so counterproductive you waste valuable time arguing about the wrong things. It's not just arguing about the wrong things. It's, I think, a key mindset a lot of people have where they want to discuss only the problem and they can't move from problems to solutions. Yeah. No. Okay. Like I said, we started off with a little cancel culture thing, but oh, no. Again, this is just going from stuff I've read and whatever, but you know, I, I don't want to bring fiction into it because you know there's all plenty of movies about prison, but uh, <laughs> but like there is a different kind of code in a way. Like I mean, you know, it's even have it on the playground to a certain extent, right? You don't rat on your friends, you don't you know, you don't snitch on people, but the whole cancel culture is like you're making people like write each other out. Like you've got it in school systems now where you can complain about teachers or you've got it in, you know, other students who they actually go you know, and encourage it on university campuses where you're yeah. you know, like, Oh, if you see something, call someone out. It's just like, yeah. which is exactly what we see historically in totalitarian regimes in Soviet Russia, communist China. Like that's how you enforce these systems because they can't watch everyone. They don't have that technology yet. They need to make a culture of people telling on people for breaking the rules and norms so that they can stop the talk. That's the only way that they can really stop it. Yeah. I mean, and at that point, you're at the mercy of whoever doesn't like you. I mean, I, I've worked in some places where, you know, like when I was in Haiti, I was speaking to some of the people there and it's, you know, they talk about when Duvalier was around and it was you know, like complete dictatorship. And it was, 
if someone was angry with you, they could just rat you out for no good reason. And then that was yeah. it. You're done. And, it's, and whether it's true or not, it can yeah. be the rest of your life in prison because someone said you spoke badly about the regime and now everyone's got this self-censor. No one can say what they think. It's easy for the people who control that system to stay in control. He, now, like comparing your situation to... Um, I'm just trying to think. Okay, take someone like Brett Weinstein. You know, yes, he's doing his podcast. I'm sure he's doing okay. Like, I'm not, you know, and he got a settlement from Evergreen, but will he ever be able to teach again? Like, is it, you know, like that kind of thing? Like, there's, and in your case, like, you know, you were denied, you were denied admissions to a, like, to a university program that you wanted to get into. And it's, well, no, I was, admitted yeah. but so it's actually confusing and technical because so what happened was i was admitted to the graduate school at no point do they tell you that if you're admitted to the graduate school you're not admitted to the university because it's automatic unless you have a criminal record and then they decided to not admit me to the university making it impossible for me to register for classes so like I got into the school, I just couldn't register for classes because of my criminal record, you know, despite that I've been an upstanding citizen and this is a public university and I was enrolled in another public university and had done nothing but get straight A's and give back to the society. Now, again, with that, like there, this is, I mean, like I said, you know, if you are going to have people incarcerated, you know, the you're supposed to rehabilitate them like if you want them to come back into society and you're talking about recidivism but i think of like with the cancel culture side of things there was, there was that young girl i think she was 14 and she was singing a rap song and it was on a video and she got accepted to some university i think in tennessee and then some kid in her class who had a grudge against her brought up the video sent it to the university and she was saying the n-word so they they were like like rescinded her application her acceptance because of that i'm like okay she was a she was 14 b she was singing a rap song i mean i you know I, i'm not saying she was like you know if she was yelling down the street or whatever that might be a different thing but she was still 14. no i mean that is one of the things that's very lost in the discussion especially by the woke crowd is proportionality where yes that was a mistake, something she shouldn't have done. But that's not a mistake worth taking away her college four years later for. Like that is like a 14 year old saying a dumb thing like that doesn't really affect their future ability to give back to society. Doesn't mean that they're a racist. It just means she was singing along to a song and not thinking through the consequences of all the words she was saying because she's 14 that's normal <laughs> oh you'd mentioned like okay no one has answers and stuff like that now like you'd also mentioned like you'd done some work with the police and i know like you know like you know, with, with the gangs in the 80s there was a lot of talk about that like you know it was like ex-gang members would go work with the police try to like you know get kids out of gangs and stuff like that do they have any kind of programs where they take you know ex-felons yeah, yeah. or ex-convicts and they have them on boards about like 
conditions in prison or things like that? Or is it, or are like people who've been released from prison completely left out of those kind of discussions? Yeah, I mean, I've never heard of people going through prison who have asked any of our opinions on what needs to change in the criminal justice system. How can we rehabilitate people? It's just kind of like we're separate. Kind of once you go through and you're labeled as a felon, you're just kind of treated like you don't matter. Your opinion is irrelevant and no, society doesn't care about you. And there's very few people who are like, trying to fight the fight and saying like, hey, this is a tremendous amount of people. There's a great op-ed uh, recently written by Jamie Diamond from JP Morgan Chase, where he points out like, hey, the same amount of people have criminal records as have college degrees in America. Like we can't just let all this group of people not fully work and function in society. It's killing the economy and it is. You see that especially in predominantly black, Hispanic, minority areas. Get on this. Like, I'm just curious, like, what about things like literacy? Like, are, are there any programs in any of the prison systems where they like, because if kids can't read and write, I mean, that's, you know, that kind of seems like a, something that would lead along to crime because you, know, you don't have many other options at that point. Right? Um, so are there any, like, even, like, basic literacy programs or, like, basic math so, programs for that? There was a program to make sure everyone could get their GED. But after that, I didn't see any. So basically, they taught you how to pass an exam. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and once you got through that, they considered themselves like, oh, we've helped you get an education that you can function in society and when you're kicked out, you have no support and they just expect people to be able to make it and become law-abiding citizens and support themselves financially after that, which is ridiculous. Okay, is it because there's no oversight or is it just like, like it, I mean, is it incompetence, malice? Like, what, like what's <laughs> going on? Or is it a mixture of the two? Like, I honestly don't know. I would assume it's mostly incompetence. I try to, but I personally lean towards incompetence unless you can like clearly see malice. Because I mean, okay, and I, you know, like I said, I, I, I worked for governments before and I realized there's all kinds of issues, but with, with budgeting and this and that, but I mean, like if you're not, if there's no oversight on how the funds are being allocated, like I don't understand, like, is it the same thing like within schools where, you know, they're, they're teaching these kids to pass these exams, but the kids aren't actually being able to aren't actually learning everything. So it's like, Oh, look, they're doing good on the exams. Is it like something like that? Do you think, or sorry, I mean, definitely I, I, not like, yeah, no, definitely not like that because there's not like an exam besides getting people their GED. There's not like an exam. They want people to pass and everyone knows that the metric to look at is recidivism. And the system is abysmal at recidivism. <laughs> okay, so let's talk a bit about that. So how, like, what are the stats on that in the States? 
if I remember correctly, I haven't checked this in a while. It is, I believe there's a few studies that show it's 60, 70% within the five year period of being released. Jeez. That's like, so if you're getting like almost two thirds and in, in five years going back, that is that part of it? Do you think it's like, just can't find work or having a hard time coming back into society is like, does a time spent in prison affect the chances of recidivism? Like if you, if you'd like been in for a year, would you have less chance than if you'd been in for like five to 10 or something like that? Or? I haven't seen research on that. I would assume so. In my experience, it comes down like this. The biggest reason why people commit crimes in the United States are for financial reasons. People selling drugs or stealing to make money to support themselves, their family, their habit, whatever reason they need money for. And when people don't have another way to make money to support themselves, and this is all they know, and it's what is available, like, it's what they have to go back to. Okay. Again, yeah, yeah, it's, 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 it's like, I don't, I don't want to go keep going back yeah. and you know, beating a dead horse here, but like, if they don't yeah. train so I people. I just checked real quick on prisonlegalnews.org. Mm -hmm. And they cite two studies that shows that over nine years for state prisoners, recidivism rate is 83%. And for federal prisoners, 64%. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's just not good. Um, look, getting back to some of the, like, you know, the woke stuff and this and that, like, Okay, I mean, I'm assuming like life is really controlled inside a inside a prison. But when you see the type of controls that they're trying to put in the classrooms, and I'm not trying to compare it, you know, like it's, it's even with like I've spoken to people like, but you know, you know, Maoist China or even like Soviet Russia, it's, you know, it's it's not exactly because your life isn't in danger. But do you see like similarities between like what they're trying to do in schools and classrooms between like how it was in like prison and stuff like that? No. Actually, I think it's the opposite. And here's what I mean by that. When I see what's happening now in the educational system, it is a form of indoctrination where they have an agenda. They want the students to learn and to know and to live by. And they're actively trying to get this thing into their head of you know critical social justice or whatever you want to call it as opposed to in prison where they're not actively trying to indoctrinate you in anything they're just trying to hold you in a box until it's time to let you out and wait for you to come back to the box there was never an <laughs> like they didn't try to educate me on anything during prison it was just like oh you know sit in the cell Yep, go exercise. Yep, no forced education of any sort. But also, no forced or even like attempted rehabilitation or job education, you know, help me succeed when I got out. Like, I had to figure out how to do all of that in my own time. Okay, and then they control your time. So 
the time you might have to spend on it is like probably limited because of that, right? While they do control your time, it is when they control your time, they're not generally controlling what you're doing with your time, but they're controlling the environment that you're in. So like in the federal system, so like I told you, when you eat the top of the pay grade, you can make a dollar an hour. At the bottom, you make like eight cents an hour and everyone's required by law to work. One of the things people forget about the end of slavery in the United States constitutional amendment is it explicitly says that slavery is still legal for the conviction of a crime. And you're forced to work for eight cents an hour, which is pretty much slavery. Now, but because the system is so overcrowded, that job is basically just holding you a different environment. Like when I was forced to work in the kitchen, they moved us all to the kitchen on our shift, made us put on hair nets and aprons, and then we stood against the wall for four hours because there was nothing to do, and so many of us. <laughs> and they control like when you're in your cells or when you're in the library, when you're in the chapel, when you're out in the yard. But once you get there, there's no one like making you do anything. It's just, it's much more they limit the things that you can do not trying to make you do anything or assist you in doing anything. Okay, again, I mean, just, I, it just the logic behind that fails me. Um, like, you know, it's, well, you're setting people up for failure. You're setting people up to come back. It's like, you know, again, if it's the pro for profit thing, it's like, you know, return clients type of thing. Yeah. And it's easy to miss because the people who go to prison tend to all know each other and the people who are removed from that world just never interact with and never deal with it and never see it. Yeah, that's okay. I, now I'm not, again, I'm, I'm making a very, very loose comparison here. Um, so, you know, I spent quite a bit of time working in war zones and now okay, we were free. Like, you know, we weren't incarcerated a lot and I was making, you know, a really good salary and everything. But again, some of, some of the stuff you're talking about, like on the bases, like, you know, we would sneak off the bases sometimes at night because if we got caught off the base, we'd lose our job and you know, all this. It was just, you know, but you're stuck to base. You know, you're told when to eat. You know, you're told like, like you know, meal times are this time to this time. Um, and it was okay again, like we were free and all that. So I'm not it's like it's a very, very loose comparison, but it was you know you go from your you go from your work to your bunk and if there was nothing going on, like I worked in IT, if there was nothing going on, nothing everything was working fine. I mean, we're just sitting there watching movies, or it's be like I could be in my bunk watching a movie, or I could be sitting at my desk watching a movie. It was just like yeah. but it was just day in, day out routine of that. So I don't know. Yeah, which kind of drives you a little bit crazy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But uh, yeah, I know it's uh, like when you look at all the cancel culture stuff now um, and you look at like all these recriminations and you look at, you know, basically no way out for people. Uh, like, 
how do you like are you trying to like push back against that or anything or are you trying to do anything like like how how do you deal with that like when you see you know like they said like that young girl who got her college admission rescinded like 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 what do you see as a way to push back against that i think the big way to push back against it in the long term is to find ways to get people involved in concrete ways to give back to the community and to improve the world. I think the appeal that wokeness has for so many people is it's obvious to almost all of us that the world does not operate like it should. And we need to do things to change the world to operate more like it should. Now, of course, people disagree on what that means, but I think a lot of people feel that. And by joining the woke movement, you feel like you're doing something, like you're fighting back, like you're improving the world. But really, that energy is wasted. We need to redirect it to a constructive and productive way of making the world better. Like, if you think that racism is a problem, it is one thing to be, like, say, in America, you know, campaigning for criminal justice reform. It's another thing to be scrolling through Twitter looking for someone who doesn't use the right pronouns to gang up on them. And it's also easy. Like, a lot of the things that woke people do are easy and safe like who wants to talk about how we fix the problem in afghanistan no one wants to go to afghanistan to try to fix that and discussing it's hard to figure out but when you have an easy specter like oh there's racist and we need to shut up the racist and once you can't find any real racist you just start creating them to keep yourself busy yeah, and for me, it's the the hypocrisy, like the racism side of things. Like, okay, you know, it's so whatever. Let's let's start with you know the things that they say, which which I can't argue against. Which is okay. Yes, white people came up with the concept of race. It's not that there wasn't hatred before. Like the hatred of the other was always there, but it wasn't you know. But the white people came up with a concept of race and put all these, you know, put racial categories on people. So, like, given all that. But now, like, if you look at someone like Larry Elder, say whatever you want about Larry Elder's politics, but to call him the black face of white supremacy. Yeah. Know, like, okay. I mean, and these are people who call themselves, you know, anti-racist. It's, it's like, but you're doing the exact same thing. You're taking these made up racial categories and you're dumping them on people. Like there was a guy in the UK, uh, he was an MP, Trevor Phillips. And he, I think he was a labor uh, MP as well. And he was pushing back against some of this stuff. You know, basically called him an Uncle Tom and, you know, like I'm trying to remember. I don't know if they said house slave or not, or they might have said house Negro. I can't remember. But like, I mean, you know, like that hypocrisy really gets me. Like you guys are doing the exact same thing. Yeah. I think a lot of that comes to people coming 
with the solution instead of taking time to understand the problem and find the solution that really works. And when I say coming with a solution, it kind of contradicts what I said earlier about them not being solution oriented. And the way I think about that is they've got a very easy solution that sounds like it will work, but doesn't tell you what you need to actually do. I'll give you an example. It's very much like if we're discussing, you know, how to end world hunger. And we come up with the solution to world hunger is to feed the hungry people. Now let's go out and feed the hungry people. And if anyone says that they don't want to feed the hungry people, then there are four people starving and we need to attack them because they're causing the problem. Like it's too simplistic to give concrete actions of how I make it better. Like if we say like, ah, oh, the problem is systemic racism is what America is. If we just stop all the racists, we'll solve the problem. It doesn't tell you what steps to do to solve the problem, what it looks like. It's very much like one of my favorite quotes of all time comes from Albert Einstein. Make everything as simple as you can, but not any simpler. We're taking these complex multifactorial problems and making them so simple as if just this one thing that if everyone agreed on would solve the problem. And that's just not how the world works. Yeah. I mean, I find a lot of it is performative. Like, okay. The, the anti-racism thing. So the, whatever the advisory board is for realtors in Canada, you know, don't use the word master bedroom because it has connotations of slavery, like primary bedroom, you know, and that's to help fight racism. It's like, okay. That's really performative or our government. So, in 2019, during the last election campaign, the Canadian Human Rights Commission granted to First Nations people who were in residential schools, I can't remember the sum of money. It was like, I think it was over a billion dollars, but I, I could be wrong there. I don't remember the sum of money. So the government that was in power then was the Liberals, and you know they're in power now. They, they sued the victims. They sued the people who the human right, Canadian Human Rights Commission granted this money to because <laughs> they, they, they disagreed with the amount. Now, recently, like, you know, again, like all this stuff about the residential schools came up again, like they did a report a couple of years ago, and then they started digging up the graves and they found these mass graves or unmarked graves, sorry, it was, um, and the whole thing came up again. And so he's, our prime minister had the flags lowered to half mast, but he's still suing the victims. He's still suing the victims. He's talking about how great he is by lowering the flags. He brought it up during this election campaign about how great he was that he lowered the flags to half mast and other candidates want to raise the flags. It's like, it's such performative bullshit. It does nothing. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's just people like virtue signaling. It's like, if I signal the right virtues behind the scenes, I can do whatever I want as long as I send out the right signals that I care. It's yeah. words and not actions, which is, so problematic but but it's also like when you say words like okay like okay don't use the word master bedroom i mean with that it's okay, okay words create reality yes you can't describe reality without words or whatever but but for them it's 
I mean, it's an actual thing. Like it's it's almost like they're they're speaking magic. Like you know, you 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 have to stop these words if you don't hear the words, and you can't you can't cast the magic spell. Like like the, again, what you're talking about easy answers. I mean, it's it's so childish. It's 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 literally comes down to like wish fulfillment at some points. Yeah, like if we're hopeful, the problem will fix itself. Then like oh, like what does stopping to use the word master bedroom do to help anyone? (laughs) To me, it's also like, okay, you know, when they say, okay, don't think about, you know, don't think about chocolate cake. It's it's, as soon as you say that, you you kind of just only think about that, right? It's, it's like, oh, well, don't say master bedroom. And it's, you're getting people to focus on the thing you don't want them to focus on. Like, I mean, okay, the racism. I mean, I think that, you know, that colorblind ethic where you don't put any social significance on the color of someone's skin, you know, it, it doesn't mean that you don't notice it. It doesn't mean, you know, I mean, you could you take demographics, you could, but, you know, like government needs statistics, or whatever, but I'm talking about like a daily day, day-to-day basis when you're interacting with people. That colorblind ethic is the way we should be going, but they're getting kids, they're getting everyone to focus hyperly on race and just recently there was a few studies out, you know, and for the first time in a long time, like there is a resurgence in a white, you know, like a white racial identity that's growing. And especially in little kids, because I mean, what's going on in schools and it's just like, okay, you know, we should be getting, like we were getting away from it. All of a sudden we just kind of veered back into this thing. And so it's like, I'm like, they're counterproductive to what they want to do. Yeah. And that is like the biggest problem with wokeism in my mind is that it's making the problem worse, not better. And there's like still so much work that needs to be done to make the situation better. Okay. Now, now you see, I know I'd ask you this, like, but you'd mentioned there's not a lot of programs and stuff, but with any like the any interactions you had with people who worked in any kind of like rehabilitation programs or people to like you know get you back on your feet or anything like that, or even counseling and prison, like, did you run the gamut of people who are like you know completely unwoke to like you know like from like. I don't know, take from like, you know, enlightenment values to like Ibram Kendi. Like what was the spectrum of the people you like, like the public officials you dealt with while you were in the system? Just mean, nasty people cussing me out for the most part. (laughs) Yeah. Like you, again, like these woke people aren't like in council roles in the prison rehabilitation system, like trying to help these people get jobs. They're on Twitter complaining. I had one counselor in the halfway house who was a great guy and really tried to help. But outside of that, across the board, the counselors and the rehabilitation, they were mostly just people on power trips degrading us, telling us how worthless we were and doing nothing to help. That sounds awful. Okay, the, I mean the, the only yeah, like this, thought... this woke thing is like a college campus thing. It does not. 
exist in prison. At least it didn't when I was in. Maybe it started to come out, but. Well, like the reason I kind of brought it up is because I've spoken to a couple of counselors and stuff and a couple of people who work in, with trauma. And um, there was one, uh, there was one woman I spoke to from the States, her and her husband had like a trauma counseling center. And then the college graduates that were coming out and coming into their practice were decidedly woke. And this was, she said she started noticing this around 2014, 15-ish. Um. And I mean, they had like a big power struggle in there. It was like the council, it was like the counseling center that they'd started. And I'd spoken to a few others and it's getting into counseling and it's getting into therapy and it's getting into a lot of these things. So I was just curious if you'd like run across. I mean, I, I just try to wonder what, how they could design a program to, you know, stop recidivism. Like, what would they be doing? Like, you know, would they be getting prisoners to read Ibram Kendi? Like, I have no idea. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, they don't make prisoners read anything <laughs> or teach them how to read for that matter. Oh, yeah. Again, I, okay. I questioned that about the schools. Like, you're talking about solutions. Like, you know, they, I look at some of the curriculum that are coming in and I'm like, okay, but if 65% of the kids can't read, how do you expect them to read Anti Racist Baby? Like, how do you expect them to read any of this stuff that you want them to learn? Like, I, sorry, like I said, I, I keep beating this dead horse, but I just don't understand why anyone wouldn't want, at the very least, if you've got people in prison, okay, you got people in prison, like, there is a captive audience. Like, teach them to read. Like, give them yeah, at least the skills to read. There's no excuse why, if you have someone incarcerated for 5, 10, 15, 20 years, they... I mean, not even a plan. Why can't that person leave with a job waiting for them? Like you had the time to give them training and find a job. Like you sent out with nothing, no plan, no job waiting for you. Figure it out by yourself. If you're lucky enough to have family support you, you have that. But many people don't have that. And like, why can't you have job training and the job waiting for you and the place to stay and all these things figured out during that time. But instead, they waste it. And I think a big part of that is the system is completely based on the idea of being punitive, not rehabilitative. And they have this idea that if it's punitive enough, people won't want to come back. People don't want to come back, but without the tools to do something else, they quickly wind up coming back like another aspect to this so so there's one thing to rehabilitate prisoners there's one thing to you know stop recidivism but what about fixing some of the societal problems where people go to prison like you know i mean again i mean I, like I, harping on the education it's just you know, they're not you know, getting rid of standardized testing and getting rid of evaluation is not going to help the students who can't read and write. And that's not going to help, you know, black communities, like I said, Latino communities. It's not, you know, it's certainly not helping the Asian communities, which for some of them, it's like the only way out. Like I think it was in New York city, the, the Asian community had the largest number of people below the poverty line. Um, even though there's, you know, whatever the, crazy rich Asians if you want to go that route as well <laughs> but yeah, and um, Harvard decided that like oh we're going to raise the bar higher for the Asian students <laughs> yeah, but I mean but like I said getting rid of that 
isn't helping. So what, like when do you, I don't know how, if you do any kind of work with the community or anything like that, but like, again, I find that the, you know, the woke solutions, like quote unquote solutions are not dealing with the actual problems. And not even attempting to deal with the problem. Like I've never heard a woke person talk about what to do about the, you know, school to prison pipeline and solutions to fix it. They're too busy talking about like, oh, we need to apologize for racism. And again, I've just never seen any of them have any real solutions, even discuss or attempt to have solutions to the problem, short of if we defund the police, it'll solve everything, which is obviously not the answer. Yeah, the defund the police thing, though. Now, there's okay. Obviously, there's got to there. There's you know anyone who says there's no problems is lying. Yeah, but I mean some I of the studies. Some of the studies I've read. Um, now, th- these are things that came out in the last few years. It's just, okay. Part of the issue was under policing for violent crimes, but because you've increased the police level because of the violent crimes, there you're now over policing all the little petty stuff like shoplifting and stuff like that. So, you know, that creates animosity. That creates, you know, if you see police, like people are going to get their hackles up and the people are, you know, like there's not a good relationship between police and community because of things like that. And that's the real problem. In my mind, in my experience, like a lot of the friction comes from giving the officers who are generally good people, these ridiculous laws to enforce that put them just at complete odds with the community. Like the fact that we still like as a nation in America haven't like said, Hey, like the war on drugs didn't work. It was a complete disaster. Let's end it. Like still so many States, like, small amounts of marijuana are illegal and people going to prison for them. Like, have we not completely fixed that problem yet? Yeah. Okay. I mean, and I know people are going to like, you know, Oh, that's slippery. Okay. Hey, first of all, I think like, you know, pot, like any cannabis product should be just legalized right now. Like, you know, whether it be a pot or hash or whatever. Now, when it comes to things like heroin and whatever, I mean, like you can decriminalize it and, get people into treatment or, you know, decriminalize it and they get it from a government facility instead of like from a dealer or something like that. So, I mean, you take, you know, you take the, you take the market away, then they're going to have to go somewhere else. But, you know, so like, I I'm okay with taking the market away, but I, I, I don't know if I'd want to see like heroin legalized. <laughs> like I said, I mean, like, decri- <laughs> no, like decriminalized the sense where like you can go to a government facility and actually get, you're fixed, but at the same time, get treatment, you know, like get, yeah. like incorporate something. So those harder drugs, like the heroin, the cocaine, I don't have the solution for what would make that a better situation. And it is tough because they are hard drugs that are dangerous to people. But I do know this, the root of someone's heroin or cocaine addiction is a mental health problem which means that fundamentally we should be looking at it that way 
right now we're looking at as if it is fundamentally a criminal problem. And that makes the problem worse. We've seen that that approach does not work. And we need to start thinking about solutions, considering that someone doesn't get addicted to heroin because in their soul, they're a criminal that has problems. They have a mental health issue that needs to be treated as such. You know, I 100% agree. Like, I, that's why I said, like, decriminalize and, you know, not legalize. But but if you decriminalize, I think at the same point, like I'd spoken to... Um, He's a journalist from the UK, but he's been living in Mexico for a while and he's been covering the cartels. And, you know, he said like decriminalizing would be good in the sense of the prison system and all that, but it'd still be bad because you would still have a market for it and it would still be coming through through the cartels. So that's why I think if you decriminalize it, you should actually, the people are going to freak out. Like, I don't think any government would want to be in the business of selling cocaine or heroin, but, you know, if it's an actual government dispensary this and that at the same time like i said treatment you have to mm -hmm. get these people treatment it's but there's two sides to the drug issue there's you know the people who are using it who are addicted who need like you said you need treatment but then there's you know especially things like cocaine that's the cartels bringing it in and it's you and know, a lot of that comes into policies in other countries like it doesn't help the like it would help the violence in america tremendously if they completely decriminalize something like cocaine it would not help the violence in you know colombia mexico if you did that like those cartels have too much money they're too powerful if they're the suppliers like a lot of the violence around drugs comes from a lack of societal support for wrongs like drug dealers on the streets in America like have guns and create violent acts because they can't call the police to save their businesses <laughs> yeah I mean like, like I, that's why I said you know I, I, I have no issue and actually I mean have no issue with like hallucinogens being legalized because I mean you don't see a lot of people out on like rampages on mushrooms <laughs> like, you know, yeah. like you know like you don't really get addicted to mushrooms yeah. or lsds i mean there, there's other others too which but. is interesting because without question the drug that we see people abuse the most that causes the most violence is alcohol <laughs> oh yeah for sure i mean it's it's you know 100 it's like uh you know hands down it's 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 i think it's does more harm to your body than like you know let's say pot um mm. uh, but yeah it's and one of the bigger problems in the societal discourse where we've kind of polarized and picked sides is that we follow the party line without thinking for ourselves about what our values really are for example if someone is against the legalization for pot but they're like a complete Puritan and also think that we should bring back prohibition and make alcohol illegal. I respect your opinion. You have a consistent value system. Yeah. But if with what we know now about marijuana, if you think we should leave alcohol legal and keep weed illegal, you're just following the party line, which doesn't make any sense based on what we know about how these things work and affect human beings. Yeah, 100%. I mean, if you're, yeah, like I said, if you're consistent and you're just like, yeah, yeah, 
no pot, no alcohol, no whatever. Like, you know, yeah, fine. I, I can respect your consistency. I might you know, not respect your views, but I can yeah, respect yeah. your consistency. Yeah, I'll, I'll disagree with you, but like you've thought this through. You have a deep value, which you think is true. Like, yeah. Yeah, yeah but yeah, no, no, no. Those are, I think, would be the two biggest things. To again, they're they're you still have to fix the societal issues, but if you, you know, legalized or at least decriminalized drugs, um, and you know, low level, like if you're only going the decriminalization, like decriminalized low level dealing, you know, like a nickel and dime stuff, like don't bother with that, like give the guy a ticket or something, um, <laughs> mm. like something like that, and getting rid of the for-profit prison system i mean that, that's just my view that would go a long way in fixing some of the things you're talking about because you would have less people in prison you'd have less people with records and yeah granted i mean like especially like a place like california that the three strikes i don't know if they still do like you know you get caught smoking three joints that's it life in prison it's, <laughs> it seems a little excessive man <laughs> <laughs> yeah, just a tiny bit <laughs> you know, it's like you know like, do you find that as well? Like the punishment doesn't fit the crime? Cause I mean, I, I see some of these things like, you know, people with like horrific crimes getting a few years and like, you know, getting 10 years for like an ounce of pot. It's like, Jesus Christ. It's a, yeah. It's, it's a, especially it's, in the federal system, you see lots of that because of like the way they charge people. Um, here is an example I have to give from a friend of mine who I was locked up with. So his story was that someone had raped his girlfriend. So he went and got his homeboys and they shot up the house, threw a Molotov cocktail. Um, unfortunately, someone else was inside the house, like a girl, like got like shot in the arm. It was like a terrible situation. He definitely did something wrong. And because the case went federal and the way it was charged, he ended up with 25 years in prison. And what he'd always say is like, you know, if I just walked down Main Street in the middle of the day, pulled out a gun and shot him in the head and killed him, I'd have got half as much time. I mean, it's ridiculous. Now, look, I don't want to keep you too, too much longer, uh, but I just... Some of these things, like, okay, again, with the conversation around this, oh, you know, like, you're targeting black people, you're doing this, it's all racist, but, like, I'm like, if I'm going to have this conversation, I want to have it, you know, completely, and it's, so, to blame some of this stuff purely on systemic racism, like, I'm like, okay, if you look in the 80s, there were black police chiefs and black mayors asking for more police in the you know and like whatever like in, in like i don't want to call it the projects whatever that's what they were called in like the 80s but like the inner cities and things like that they were asking for more, especially like with the crack epidemic and like all the gangs but so i'm like okay if you want to talk about this let's talk about this and it's in my mind it's like the, the problem was that over policing for the smaller stuff and not enough police dealing with the actual you know bigger bigger issues but I want to have that conversation honestly. Like, I don't want to just like, oh, it's all like you're talking about. It's a, you know, like a take a very complex thing and bring it down to one thing. Oh, it's all racism. I'm like, no, there was other factors aside from the just racism hmm. that caused like these issues. 
I mean, at the end of the day, what we're seeing now is a rejection of some of the fundamental liberal values that Western democratic societies are built on, where you can't have that conversation. You don't allow people to disagree. You don't have the discussion at all. And we need to have these discussions. Like, just because someone, like, if someone thinks that there's no racism at all in America and that it's not a problem, like, I disagree with them. I don't think they should be silenced. I don't think they should be shut down. I think having that discussion and letting his mind get changed, maybe my mind getting changed in certain values and ideas and having other people learn from that discussion is how we find the real solutions to making society better. When you shut that person down and you don't get the conflicting view or see how other people can look at situations and how it looks like to them what the solutions are, then at no point do we improve our ideas. Instead, our ideas just keep getting worse and worse and worse. And a badly implemented idea can be much more dangerous than a malicious idea. Yeah, I, mean, I agree with that all completely. But one of the things you said there, though, it's like getting away from liberal values. That's one of the things with this stuff that we like sticking, like, you know, with, like, you are not, people are now guilty until proven innocent instead of the other way around. Like in, in the cancel culture, in like, you know, in the court of public opinion now, you're, you're, you're guilty and then you have to prove that you're innocent. Like as soon as you get targeted as racist or transphobic or homophobic or any of these things, like, you know, that's it. You're guilty right away. And even in the extreme cases, people just don't understand the value of being innocent until proven guilty and why we need to give it to everyone. Remember, um, during the Derek Chauvin trial, there was a tweet going around where it's like, was there even a trial? There's a video of him doing it. It's like, well, because our system is based on everyone being innocent until proven guilty. And that video is evidence that makes it easy to convict him and to punish him appropriately. Taking away the trial doesn't help us get the appropriate punishment it just gives the state power to abuse other people who are innocent in other situations like we need the right to trial and the presumption of innocence we that's a good thing yeah exactly <laughs> I mean, and it's like I, I don't think people you know like the, the whole um john rawls thing like the veil of ignorance i don't think they've put themselves in that position where if you know, for whatever fluke of chance you find yourself in that position, you know, you, you'd want that for yourself. So like at yeah. least afford it to other people. <laughs> Look, like I said, I don't want to keep you too long, but it was be great talking to you. If you wouldn't, if you want to let people know where they can get a hold of you, and like I said, I'll put a link to your article in the description. Oh yeah, your, thank you. Yeah. Uh, so easiest way to reach me is Twitter at Real D Ben Moshe. Right. Well, again, thank you very much, David. It was great talking to you. All right. Thank you very much. And thanks everyone for listening. I'll be back.